Welcome to My Middle East, the podcast from Embrace the Middle East. Embrace is a Christian charity working with and through Christian partners in the Middle East, in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel, and Palestine. Our partners work with people of all religions and beliefs to lift up vulnerable and marginalized people and their communities. I'm Tim Lipsy, CEO of uh, Embrace the Middle East. And throughout this series, I'll be talking to uh, people from all walks of life with different perspectives uh, on the Middle East. And hopefully with their help, we're going to paint a picture of what the Middle East really looks like and feels like today. I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking to uh, Sister Bridget Tai. Bridget is the General Secretary of Caritas, the Catholic Development Network. So welcome, Sister Bridget. And would you mind if I called you Bridget, Sister Bridget? Please do, please do. I'm delighted to be here and thank you for the invitation to talk about the Middle East, which as I'll tell you, I love. What is it about the Middle East that you love? What is it that you encountered when you first went? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your first experience. Sure. Uh, I joined a religious, a Catholic religious missionary congregation. Um, I was quite young, but I had some experience of life. I had joined a nursing um, program in England, so I had traveled a bit. And I entered my religious order, the Franciscan Missionaries of the Divine Motherhood. And after initial formation, religious formation, I was sent on my first mission, which was to Jordan. Um, at the, in those days, it's quite a long time ago, and we would normally, as young sisters, just be told where to go. It wasn't done in a nasty way. It was just our life. You were known by your superiors and you would be assigned to a mission. In my case, because this was in 1971, at the end of the civil war in Jordan, and I was young, I was uh, in temporary vows, and I was asked, actually asked, would I be willing to go to Jordan? And it was a war zone and it was difficult. And well, what else do you need when you're, you know, in your early 20s? Or <laughs> And then I went to an atlas or looked to find out where is the, the country of Palestine? I knew nothing about the Middle East. And of course, the maps didn't show Palestine. This was after immediately, uh, soon after the Six Day War, and there was the West Bank and the occupied territories and all that we know now. But Jordan was there on the map. And so I went very innocently and with great enthusiasm to Jordan. And in Jordan, I learned, it was my first encounter with the Middle East. I learned about the Middle East. I joined a British council that had a very good library. I read uh, widely about the history of the Middle East and the different countries. And I went straight into work with Palestinian refugees. I was a newly qualified nurse tried to learn Arabic in the evenings from the people with private lessons. Ideally, would wouldn't have got, wouldn't, would have studied for a couple of years, but we went straight into work. I was new with two other young sisters. And I just got to love everything about it. It was extremely poor in those days. It was just, uh, Jordan was just coming out of the Civil War in 1970, for those of you who know the history. And I think the beauty of being young is you see what needs to be done and you just throw yourself into it and do it. If later on in life, when I had studied health economics and international aid and all kinds of things, I would be asking the right questions and the deep questions. Why are these people at all living in these refugee camps? But I didn't do that. I went in, I learned Arabic, at least colloquial Arabic, 
and I got to know the people. I got to know the history. I loved the the hospitality, the friendliness of the people, how we were accepted with our broken Arabic, but our goodwill and trying to work in very poor conditions. And I stayed there in that mission for about four and a half years. And I didn't realize until years later just what an impression those early years had made on me. I was back in England. I was went back to England to do further study and I trained to be a midwife, various things. Um, then I was reassigned to Jordan uh, about three years later. And my second assignment to Jordan was for an 11 year period. I went back to England and Ireland in between. And during that time, I had a similar experience with the people, but I was older. I had made my final vows as a religious sister in Jordan, in the parish church in Jordan. And we expanded from our work in refugee camps to uh, Zerka, those of you who know Jordan. First of all, we lived in Amman and had clinics around the refugee camps in Amman. Then we were invited to start a new center in Zerka, and I was asked to go and start that. So I lived in South Zerka uh, with the parish there and started a new clinic, primary health care, mother and child health, plus an outreach clinic in a nearby refugee camp and many other things in Jordan in those days. But over that 18 year period, I lived in Jordan, which was a very formative stage of my life. When you were there, I get the sense that you you felt at home Mm -hmm. remarkably quickly, especially considering how, as we all know, how, how difficult Arabic is. Did you miss Ireland? Did you miss England? Did you miss this bit of the world? Or were the tables turned and it became the rather distant, uh, remote place? Um, when I was assigned there, yes, it was totally strange to me, but we had a religious, so, uh, four of our sisters, four or five sisters. So when we went back to the convent, we were sisters, we knew each other. And we spoke our own language, we cooked our own food. So we had our own sort of familiar space there, if you like. Um, some things, I mean, this is a long time ago, but some things have stuck in my mind forever. And one of them was when I was very new there, but understanding enough Arabic to be able to communicate with the people in, in simple colloquial Arabic. It was soon after the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, that would be 70, 71, to 71 I was there. And almost every family that we knew, this was the, the Palestinians and the refugees, it was the same on the Jordanian side. Nearly every family we knew had lost an um, adult male in the Civil War. It was really very, very bad. So a, a husband or a son or a, a brother. And we were meeting these distressed young women with children and treating the children. And I remember it being winter time and a small child that we had treated and got better from whatever disease he was suffering from. Uh, we sent him home. It was not a inter inpatients, but we just keep them in for a few hours a day. We sent this child home cured and well. And after a few days, we heard the child died of measles. I remember going to visit the home of this family in one of the camps and it was cold and wet. And I came back, if it was these days now in Western countries anyway, I'd probably be having psychotherapy for a month afterwards or something. But I remember coming back, not talking to anyone, 
it, it wasn't that the sisters wouldn't understand, but we didn't kind of talk on that level so much. And I don't know where I got the insight or or the strength. I think really it was the grace of God without sounding too pious that I sort of said to myself, if I let this poverty and this suffering touch me at too deep a level, it would destroy me. I remember thinking, if I let this touch my soul, I won't be able to help those people. And somehow I have to be able to protect my own inner being and integrity while still helping in a compassionate and the best way I can these suffering people. And I survived. In later years, I met others who had got so involved with the poor in other countries, not in Jordan, that they actually got mental breakdown or burnout and had to leave the country. So I don't know how I had the the inner strength and and knowledge, self-knowledge to be able to do that because I had not studied psychology. I did a lot of things later in life, but not at that time. So to say, did I feel at home or out of my depth or something? I never felt lonely there. We had our own community. So it was like our home with the, the religious sisters. But I was able to identify with the poverty of the people. And as a nurse, with backing of an organization called the the Pontifical Mission for Palestine that supported us financially, we were able to do something to ease that suffering, even in a small way. So I just, when I say I loved Jordan, it was not seeing everything perfect. I saw the suffering, I experienced the suffering, but I love the people. I imagine that many of the, the children that you were helping to deliver and then to look after and the families were Muslim. What does it do for interfaith relations? What is their response? How do they how do they respond to you as someone of a different faith, but who is so obviously and evidently committed in a part of the community? My understanding of how Muslims, this is a general statement, my understanding of how Muslims view committed Christians, whether they are priests or religious women consecrated to God, they respect and admire people who are consecrated to God. So even though they might not have excellent relations with the Christian churches, they really respected people of whatever faith who were dedicated to God, or as they would say, to Allah. So in my time, all the many years that I've lived both in Jordan and in Israel, Palestine, and in Gaza for three years, as you know, I personally never felt any animosity or any opposition to myself as a Christian. But I'm not denying that such things can be there. Now, Bridget, let's turn to your current um, role and indeed your time in Gaza. Tell us a little bit about Caritas. Are there any significant differences working with Palestinians in Palestine the West Bank, East Jerusalem, uh, Gaza, as compared with working with Palestinians and Jordanians in Jordan? Um, First of all, Caritas. Caritas Jerusalem is one of, I think it is 164 or 166 Caritas member organizations, as we are called, that are part or form a confederation of Caritas, not a federation, a confederation, with an office in Rome, which we call Caritas Internationalis. So we have Caritas in England, which is CAFOD. We have Caritas in Ireland, that is Trocara. We have Caritas, very big Caritas in the United States, which is Catholic Relief Service, CRS, 
And then we have Caritas Spain, Caritas Belgium, all over. Even some very small countries and poor countries in Africa have a Caritas. So Caritas in Jerusalem, the, the general mission of Caritas worldwide in general is to serve the poor and the marginalized and the needy wherever we are, regardless of religion, race, color, anything else. There is no discrimination. And Caritas works worldwide in humanitarian aid, development, and general education, not running schools or anything, but sort of general education, but mostly in social services, humanitarian and development. And we do all of those things here in Jerusalem. So Caritas Jerusalem was established in 1967, specifically to give care and, and help to people suffering from, mostly Palestinians, I suppose, from the different wars, the 67 war, especially, it was founded in 67 to 68. And so it works, there's the headquarters here in Jerusalem and Caritas Jerusalem at present so far has only worked for Palest in Palestine, the West Bank, Jerusalem and Gaza. Not yet, although it is open to, not yet working within the state of Israel. But there's nothing against that. We might in the future expand into working in Israel. So in here in, in the West Bank, at the present time, we do a lot of a small amount of um, medical work. We have a small clinic in Taibi, a Christian village, and we have an elderly center for uh, people of any religion in Ramallah that is more social than medical. But most of our work, a lot of our work is in agriculture, especially in area C, those of you who may know area A, B and C, where farmers are in danger of losing their land if they don't cultivate it and make it active. So we have big projects in the West Bank in agriculture and development in remote areas and vulnerable areas. In Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, our headquarters is here and we don't have many projects in Jerusalem at the moment. Then we work in Gaza, which of course is Palestine. It's all one Palestinian entity, the West Bank and Gaza. But for years it's been separated not only geographically, but also, unfortunately, politically. So it's like going into a separate state when you go into Gaza. So in Gaza, where I worked for three years living in Gaza, a lot of our work, Caritas work in Gaza, is humanitarian and medical. A lot of it is medical, with some humanitarian and other. What's the difference? It's hard for me to say what the difference is, because there are so many years in between when I first went to Jordan and going to Gaza, for example, between Jordan and West Bank, Jerusalem, there's always been a difference. Although I didn't, I visited Jerusalem when I was living in Jordan, but there was always a distinction between the Christians, especially in Jerusalem and Christians in Gaza, many of the Christians in Jordan. I haven't analyzed it enough to say what would be the difference there. But the difference for me going into Gaza many decades after I worked in Jordan, I had met and experienced and seen poverty in Jordan when I first went there, especially after the civil war, as I said. So I was not new to seeing poverty. But when I first visited Gaza, it was sometime between 2005 and 2011, that sort of years, I drove along through the beautiful Israeli country, very good roads, lovely agricultural land, clean, very good vehicles on the road. 
and, you know, first world country, beautiful, still is. And then I went through the crossing into Gaza and it was like going into a fourth world country, donkeys and carts, poverty, um, rubbish everywhere. Although I don't want to equate rubbish with poverty, but they do tend to go hand in hand. I wasn't shocked by the poverty, but I was shocked by the contrast that you just walk across a border and the contrast between the richness in every sense of Israel and the destitute poverty in Gaza. That shocked me. Um, working with the people, the atmosphere was different. There was something, uh, maybe I was different as I'm speaking. Maybe it was I who was different. When I went to Gaza, I was young and impressionable and innocent in the sense of not having been exposed to many things like this before. Sophisticated, well-educated people on the whole, people in Gaza are highly educated, but affected by the years of constant war and closures and poverty and not as, as open to foreigners and everything as I found them in Jordan. That was until I got to know the people. But once I got to know the people and I got to know them through Caritas and through our work and through our staff, they are just ordinary, lovely people. I'm not saying there aren't other elements there in Gaza. For sure there are. But the ordinary people that you meet, they are ordinary people trying to live, trying to educate their children, but traumatized in many ways by war after war, by poverty, by disappointment, by wondering when this will ever end. More than two million people in this small strip of land. The youth have no experience of life outside of Gaza. Their knowledge of the outside world, for many of them who have never left Gaza, is what they see on their cell phones and on their WhatsApps and on their... So it's a totally different reality to what Jordan was. There's poverty in both places, but it's it's different because it's... People say it's an, like an open prison. Yes, it is. It's, it is an open prison. But when you go into Gaza, you go through the, the checkpoint, and I've got used to that, and you're in Gaza, you can move freely around Gaza. You know, you can drive from the north to the south of the Strip in about an hour and a half. There are no checkpoints. Or, there may be local soldiers, but nobody takes notice of you. There's a sort of freedom of movement within Gaza. You can drive round and round and go round and round, but you can't leave. You cannot leave by, I can because I'm a foreigner, I can come back into Israel. And I've had no problem at all, either getting a visa for Israel or getting permission in and out of Gaza. I travel freely, um, but the Gazans cannot. There is no way out except through these two checkpoints, Eretz into Israel and Rafa into Egypt. You cannot leave by land, sea or air except through those very highly controlled checkpoints. So it's it's very different to what Jordan was years ago. Yeah, you you your description it it, it resonates very much with me. I'm driving through the, um, the the Israeli the South Israeli countryside, which remind me a bit of Provence actually. Um, Could be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you you Beautiful. kind of you arrive at what looks like a sort of uh, from the outside like a small um, airport terminal. Mm-hmm. And then the whole world changes. You talked earlier about the the kind of inner resilience that you've, that you discovered perhaps a bit to your surprise uh, in in those early years in Jordan. 
one of the things I experienced in Gaza, and, and, and I do think it's important for people to hear, it's impossible to imagine, but, but this sense of isolation, I mean, never mind these periodic periods of bombardment. I mean, every day you, you're cut off. You, you, there's nowhere to go other than inside this 25 mile strip by 25 by two mile strip. But um, I remember the first time I went to Gaza, as I left, having been given this extraordinarily warm welcome to go into the terminal and then to emerge back outside the, the terminal where my car was parked and then drove away through what looked like mm. Provence, I remember feeling really quite a kind of sick feeling in my heart because yeah. knowing that that was my privilege, but yes. Th yes. These, these two million people cannot leave because you've spent so much time in Gaza and, and you're very, you know, it's very close to your heart. Do you have a sense sometimes of, feeling rather bereft, knowing that there are people that you care about who, who don't have that freedom? I feel it all the time. Every time I go to Gaza, I feel it. And probably for the rest of my life, until I see Gaza free, I will feel it because it is so profound and, and the contrast is so stark. Yes, I feel it exactly as you're saying. I have never had any problem in traveling, which is great for me because I can go in and out freely. But coming out of Gaza, and I love Gaza, your listeners might find this strange, but I actually love Gaza. I love the people. I don't love the poverty there. I don't love the oppression. And I don't love the relatively small, I presume, section of the Gaza society that do bad things. I'm well aware of that. But I love Gaza and I love the people and I love working there. But when I come out sometimes, there's almost a sense of guilt because I feel a sense of relief as well, coming back to good electricity, good Wi-Fi, freedom, all of those things. It's, it's, a, it's a complex feelings, feeling that I experience. Bridget, how do you see the future? I mean, do you see the future? Do you think about the future? Not so much for yourself, although that as well, but, but for, for, the, um, for the region. I really don't know where we will be. I think about it a lot when I think back on the going on 50 years that I have lived in the Middle East on and off. Not out of that, I've lived here between Jordan, here in Gaza, probably, I don't know, 26, 27 years, but over many, many decades. I used one time think that in my lifetime, I would see a free, independent state of Palestine and a free, independent state of Israel side by side, cooperating in some way. I don't think I will see that. Um, talk of a two-state solution and many organizations and countries talk of a two-state solution. I cannot see that happening. I don't know what will happen. I think eventually, 20, 30 years time, I don't know. There may be one state from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean. In the long term, I really do not know because as things are, everything is static, there is no movement, there's not even talk of a peace process anymore. And all one hopes for people in Gaza, all the hope for is immediately, can I get to Bethlehem for Christmas? Can I get out of the, these are the Christians, can I go to um, see my family in the West Bank at Easter? I haven't seen them for six years. For the youth, 
they're, the, the young people in Gaza, I think, are the most to be pitied because what is their future? They're, many of them, if you're a 20-year-old in Gaza, uh, you're probably at university if you're fairly clever because there's no work when you're school leaver. So there's a very high proportion of, of university graduates. And then there is no work and they cannot leave to find work in another country. So I'm worried for them, and they're a growing number. There's a very high birth rate still in Gaza. I honestly don't know. I, When I lived in Gaza, and where our clinic is, we are opposite three or four UNRWA schools. The UNRWA uh, provide a kind of parallel Ministry of Education there for the uh, Palestinian children um, up to the age of 15, and very good education. And then they go on to secondary school or whatever. So outside where I lived in Gaza and our clinic, <coughs> These schools with two or three shifts of children every day. It used to be two, it might be three now, I'm not sure. And I look at these little kids, four, five, six-year-olds up to 10 or 11, and I think in 10 years' time, they'll be having little kids. And where are all these big families going to go? I really don't know. I don't know. Well, Bridget, I don't know how much longer um, you're going to be doing the work that you're doing. Um, what I do know is that the people who decide these things will be extremely loath to let you go. And that's because you because you are remarkable. Uh, I know that it's not my place to say that, but I'm gonna say it. You are remarkable, you've done incredible things. You've changed and you've improved so many people's lives. Embrace you know, has the enormous privilege of partnering Caritas. And, and, uh, and that means that I have the enormous privilege and pleasure of, of, of getting to see you from time to time. What I, I would like to say before I go is to thank you, to thank Embrace Middle East. You say you work with us. It is our privilege and our honor to, and our, to our benefit to be partners with Embrace Middle East. And lovely to know yourself, uh, Tim, and all the best. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you for giving us at least a little glimpse of what at one point might require a reincarnation. Thanks so much, Bridget. But